Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I bring you the weird little songs I write and then give you the stories behind them. Weird stories, creepy stories, funny stories, whatever the world gives us in all its glorious mystery. And now for today's opening song. Welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and I'm in one of my moods. You just heard All It Takes is a Naked Ghost, subtitle Diana of the Dunes, on the Taylor Gemini mini acoustic guitar with foot tambourine. Hey, look, I get to trot out my poetry hats phrase, All It Takes is a Naked Ghost. I'm not sure where the inspiration came for that gem, but there it was in my collection of weird phrases come last National Poetry Month, April 2023. Run quickly to the show notes and find Poetry Hats, this year's National Poetry Month book of pearl-strung phrases on block print headwear. It's a short and sweet ebook of how a poem is born when lines are collected over time, forgotten, until put in order by daily random drawings. Anyway, wherever the phrase came from, it has found its glittering sash as the title and refrain of a new weird little song. And that song centers around Diana of the Dunes, born Alice Mabel Gray, whose fascinating spooky little ghost story we'll soon get into. I must thank my big sister for inspiring this episode. She and her family recently visited the Indiana Dunes, where Alice Mabel Gray made for herself a life of mystery, fascination, and nature in the early part of the 20th century. But first, the lyrics. When it's solitude that alone will do, find it by the dunes, wander in the nude. When you're Diana, fling your bandana by Lake Michigan, now cavort again. Shoot a dozen ducks, hang them on the line, dance along the shore, now you're feeling fine. All it takes is a naked ghost dancing like a nymph in an air bath trance of her post-Lake Michigan bath dance. When you're Diana of Indiana, haunt the dunes, my girl, do a gleaming twirl, set their minds a whirl. When you leave this life, be a naked ghost, haunt them by the lake, drink a naked toast. 
All it takes is a naked ghost dancing in a dream, in a naked gleam, dancing by the lake. What a stir you'll make. Studying the plants in a naked dance. Diana of the Dunes. And now a ghost story from Diana of the Dunes, the true story of Alice Gray by Janet Zinke Edwards. A woman dressed in a long flowing white gown is often seen at night, drifting through the pine trees at the top of a sand ridge or floating just above the surface of Lake Michigan at water's edge. But then she quickly disappears. The shadowy figure is thought to be the ghost of Diana of the Dunes, a woman who lived long ago in the Indiana sand hills. Diana of the Dunes was discovered in the summer of 1916 when a lone fisherman trolling along the Indiana shore of Lake Michigan spied a young, beautiful woman splashing naked through the waves. After swimming, she danced like a nymph on the beach to dry off. Startled and flutter, the angler told his wife, who shared the gossip with friends and neighbors. The story traveled swiftly through the region. Soon other fishermen, their curiosity piqued about the mermaid, began to drop their lines along the shore near her shack, hoping to see the mystical creature. Newspaper reporters ventured from Chicago to pounce on the story. They called her Diana of the Dunes, a strange hermit girl who lived in an abandoned fisherman's shack and spoke to no one. Diana of the Dunes was, in fact, Alice Mabel Gray, the daughter of a successful Chicago physician. She was well-educated, cultured, and had traveled the world, but she chose to live by herself in the Dunes, an area she had often visited as a child. What mysterious circumstance propelled her to lead such a lonely life? It was rumored that she ran to the wilderness of the Dunes to escape a tragic love affair. And that from Janet Zinke Edwards in... Diana of the Dunes. Edwards points out that the Indiana Dunes had long been a popular escape for those seeking the deeper existential healing powers of a natural environment. For most, a weekend getaway would have to be enough, but long-termers were usually old men who chose the hermit's life. And here's another quote from Edwards. Although historian Earl H. Reed tramped among the dunes to interview them, the grizzled old hermit men, and capture their stories and dialect in books, None of these characters experienced the intense scrutiny that Alice suffered at the typewriters of so many prolific reporters. When they weren't calling her a goddess, they treated her like a sideshow performer, a mystifying and curious misfit. Based largely on details provided in the earliest newspaper accounts, Alice has since become the subject of history book chapters, newsletter and magazine articles, plays, poems, songs, and an art show. The names of local businesses, a town festival, a street, vacation homes, even the naming of a sand dune have paid homage to Diana of the Dunes. Ghost stories, each with invented details and all claiming reports of Diana's sightings, are published in print and online. Although given other nicknames by reporters and townspeople, for example, Nympha the Dunes, Diana of the Dunes instantly took hold when it was suggested by a Chicago newspaper in the days just after her discovery. Alice might even have considered it a compliment if not for the notoriety it attracted. Headlines rarely featured her given name. Diana of the Dunes, on the other hand, frequently found its way into bold type. And some other insights from HistoryDaily.org. A sea nymph in Lake Michigan? Reports of the pretty young naked woman along the dunes of southern Lake Michigan began to circulate through the tiny lakefront towns of the area, including Chesterton, Miller, and Ogden Dunes. 
Naturally, the local residents were curious about the sightings of the woman they nicknamed Diana of the Dunes after the mythical goddess. What they found when they investigated the reports was a 34-year-old was Chicago-area woman who chose to leave city life in favor of the simple hermit life on the shores of Lake Michigan. Diana of the Dunes, a Lake Michigan ghost story with a basis in reality, continuing from HistoryDaily.org. In the early 1900s, a Lake Michigan fisherman spotted a naked woman swimming in the waters off the dunes of northern Indiana. Other people in the area also reported seeing a naked woman, sometimes swimming in the Great Lake and other times running nude along the beach. It turned out that she was a Chicago woman living the reclusive life of a hermit in a shack on the beach. Her life would be fascinating enough, but many area residents believe that she still roams the beach long after her death as a ghostly figure known as Diana of the Dunes. The move to hermit life. According to reports, Gray permanently moved to the dunes in October of 1915. She packed up a few of her belongings and moved into an abandoned shack near the beach. She survived on fish and berries and spent her time reading and writing. She was a frequent visitor to the librarian Miller, a short walk from her shack. She occasionally traveled back into Chicago to visit the museums and art galleries there. And for some more from Janet Zinke Edwards in her Diana of the Dunes book, to escape the inequality and incivility of the work world, and probably, too, to escape a difficult love relationship in the city, she sought a solitary life in the Indiana Dunes. Her inspiration derived from a poem by Lord Byron titled Child Herald's Pilgrimage, in which he wrote the line, In solitude, where we are least alone. Many have assumed that Alice never achieved such serene seclusion. During her years in the Indiana Dunes, the final 10 years of her life, neighbors and reporters alike took copious and creative notes, assigning traits and activities to Alice, both true and false, which are still reflected in prevailing stories. The most popular is that she bathed naked in Lake Michigan as soon as the ice began breaking up, so some of her contemporaries reported, although Alice denied this, and did so often, running a length of the beach to dry her body. Um, there were reports on Diana's skill at hunting, including the fact that she had shot 20 ducks and hung them on a line outside of her windowless cabin. And in fact, Alice came by the last name of Wilson. Her gravestone says, Diana of the Dunes above Alice Gray Wilson. And it was laid many years after her death. She came by that last name in the last few years of her life. She was living with a man who called himself Paul Wilson. His given name was Paul Eisenblatter, and it's unknown why he decided to go with the name Paul Wilson. But he used it throughout the time he and Alice were together. They claimed to be married at first, but then later it was known that this was not true. They could not find any legal documents um, to this effect. And a description of Diana with weathered skin and a rather indistinct frame seriously studied dunes, flora, read voraciously, and wrote manuscripts that she kept private. Some of her writings were later stolen, others lost to time. A partial diary survives and is appended. She fished and bought salt, bread, and other staples in town. Suspected of stealing food and blankets when times were hard, people also said she borrowed sturdier shelter from vacationers who owned property in the dunes while those owners were away. She walked endlessly, dressed simply in makeshift skirts and, or khaki pants, talked softly and boldly quoted poetry to intruding reporters. Alice displayed a congenial manner in good company, a fiery venom when threatened. Infrequent visitors sat outside her first patchwork shack 
which she named Driftwood and never glimpsed the interior. In her second shanty home, Wren's Nest, Alice lived with Wilson, the man who had changed his name and invented most of his past, a man who would cast murder, thievery, and injury into Alice's life. On the other hand, he offered security, companionship, adventure, a strong back, and, some may doubt this, love. Well, that's ominous. According to Wikipedia, in 1925, Alice Gray became ill with uremia, or kidney failure, but refused hospitalization. She died of uremic poisoning on February 8, 1925, at Ogden Dunes and was buried at Oaklawn Cemetery in Gary, Indiana. According to Edwards, her illness was brought on by stomach injuries inflicted by Paul just after Diana had given birth to their second daughter. A tragic end. But Diana is commemorated at the dunes with Diana's Dare from NPS.gov, Alice, who is Alice? Diana of the Dunes became a legend in her own time. She was born in Chicago as Alice Mabel Gray. She was tagged Diana of the Dunes by area reporters because she chose to live a very different life from most of the women at the time. She was a well-educated woman who studied at the University of Chicago and worked for a time at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. as a computer. Note, in Alice's time, a computer was a person who did mathematical calculations as a profession. She had a profound change of heart for reasons that are not very clear, but many newspapers at the time created a persona for the woman who chose to live alone in the wilds of the Indiana Dunes. Well, we won't spoil the entire plot here, so you will have to get out to West Beach and read the signs to complete the dare. What's the trail like? Starting from the parking lot, hikers can climb to newly named Diana's Dune. Count the steps along the way. At the first wayside, you can pause on top of the great staircase and let the breeze surround you as it heightens your senses. At this boundless vantage point, you can choose your view. You can gaze 36 miles into the distance to see the towering might of Chicago, the birthplace of our gallant advocate Alice. You can choose to see the abrupt line of contrast of where industry and nature collide, or you can turn your regard to the delicate, diverse, rolling beauty of the dune succession and its fragility. In the second wayside, you can get nestled on a bench in the dune swale as you contemplate the dynamic and complex landscape. You may hear the immense roar of the waves to the north or notice the quietness of an interdunal pond just at the foot of the jack pines. If you read the landscape as Diana did, you can understand its message. The jack pines would have told Diana that she is close to the water. Jack pines are pioneer plants, which are one of the first to root at the forefront of the shoreline because they do not like to compete with the mighty inland oak forest to the south. Diana listened, understood, and became harmonic with nature in these very dunes. As a matter of fact, this dune is designated in her honor as Diana's Dune. Along with the beach to the bathhouse, listen to the rhythms of the waves and let yourself sink with nature. Feel the sun on your soul and contemplate the many calls of the gulls and hear the singing sands dance along the shoreline. Let the diverse harmony of the dune landscape sculpt your affirmations. Dare to become a positive force in protecting these ecosystems, much like Diana did. Vow your pledge of preservation and protection to the social media world by stopping by the selfie station and hashtagging hashtag Diana Dunes Dare. 
As if this isn't enough to tempt you to complete the dare, once complete, grab your iconic sticker as a badge of honor to go with your bragging rights on completing the dare at one of our centers. Bravo NPS.gov, top shelf writing. And now, for a different brand of naked ghosts, Janet Zinke Edwards has excerpted Alice Gray slash Diana's Diary of the Dunes. Here we have a few fine stories and concerns. In the following entry, Diana describes seeing some people hanging around when she is fairly new to her lifestyle change. They worry her a little until she sees that they are photographers of the landscape, and this inspires her to trust them at once, says Diana. They seem to have a good effect on me, a calming, suspicious, allaying, confidence-bringing effect. The larger party left with a call to, quote, Mr. Hawker to, quote, hurry up or he would miss the sunset. I always smile at such a remark, sentimental, I say, and yet last night I exclaimed, oh my God, as I saw the new moon above the bands of yellow in a zone of clear greenish light. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Now, on this cloudy afternoon, as I sit and look over the milky green on the lake between the trees defined at the horizon with something darker than I should not know whether to call greenish or bluish or reddish, I feel sometimes as if I could faint with the rapture of it. Back of this hill, there is a wonderful sweep of sand up to the heights, a great wash, really, the great white way. From the top of that hill is a wide prospect, brown hills in the distance, over the tops of oak woods, and back to the lake between the dunes. The road I take to the farms and the railroads lies that way, sharp down to the oak forest in the valley. How exquisite the bare sand hills stand out coming back, especially in the subdued light at sunset. Tuesday, November 30th, Sunday night going to bed in a windstorm was quite a wonderful experience, as Elle would say. I felt perfectly safe and happy and a little excited. I intoned the Lord's Prayer over and over and was really in the spirit of prayer and worship, wanting nothing, fearing nothing, asking nothing, but to be shown my duty and given the grace to do it, filled with the beauty of the storm and with the praise and worship of God. I had thought to say to Mr. N in a joking way that I found fasting easier than prayer, but less easy than eating. Praying is a gift which is not taken by violence or by desire for it, yet how beautiful, how satisfying it is when it comes. Prayer. Hey, that reminds me of... Diana's diary contains several references to someone identified only by the initial L, a likely candidate for the other in her possible tragic love affair, which is said to be one of the reasons for her taking up a secluded life in the dunes. She preserved parts of letters she'd written to L in her journal and was often frustrated with that person or describing them as nothing because you think you are everything and phrasings of that nature. Thoughts of Elle led Diana into the following excerpt. Elle says, I have not been in the right soil. He said I should be popular to his set. Popular? Ye gods! I always think of myself as a supreme bore to the people I know. Emerson says, if you are popular in your set, it is a bad sign. But if people look at you with strange looks of regret and half dislike you, you are probably different. 
Generally, especially when I write or walk or sing or read or recite my favorite poems, I am very, very happy and contented with my lot and my course. Then once in a while I wonder if I am childish, futile, foolish, a skulker, as someone called Thoreau, a non-entity, a shirker and a deserter, and coward and egoist. Yesterday was one of the days of such doubt of myself. The highest bravery in the world is loyalty to one's trust. It may be simply withstanding the world, refusing to stoop to court or to compromise, letting the world and its glory pass by without a regret or a thought, willing to be thought nothing, but in reality, in one's self-possessing one's own desire. Yesterday I longed for society. The companionship of some big, clear-eyed, single-hearted, frank soul who would talk to me, as Elle says, about life and love, about God, freedom, immortality. The journal appendix is full of her worries over a burned hand, annoyance with Elle, awe at the landscape, and just her life on the dunes. And now finally, let's end with some unsettling possibilities for the dangerous side of the dunes taken from an article by William Keckler of icestationpoetry.medium.com, what is the likeliest solution to the Indiana Dunes mystery? In the article, Keckler examines a mystery in which three young women disappeared without a trace in the dunes in 1966, and they remain missing to this day. He offers some theories about their fates, which I will sum up as a list of dune dangers now. Number one, the women drowned while swimming. Half of the drownings in all five Great Lakes happen in Lake Michigan. It is a dangerous body of water. Number two, the women fled their lives to begin new lives elsewhere. Number three, the women were murdered by an agent or agents of Silas Jane or someone else involved in the horse syndicate. Says Keckler, maybe they were subdued and taken somewhere else to be murdered, their bodies buried far from Lake Michigan. Silas Jane allegedly once creepily bragged about having three bodies buried on some property of his. Were these the women? Number four, the women went joyriding with a stranger on a boat. It crashed and sank, and not one of their four bodies was recovered. But no boats were reported missing at that time. Number five, one of the women died in a botched abortion which took place on a houseboat on Lake Michigan. The other two were murdered to cover it up. Keckler, however, finds that an unconvincing theory. The women had left their belongings on the beach and stopped for teen magazines and suntan lotion. Keckler finds that bizarre behavior on the way to an abortion. Number six, the women were swallowed up by a hole in the dunes. Says Keckler, don't laugh, this happens. A young boy disappeared in just this manner. He sank 12 feet into the sandy earth within seconds. The dunes just closed over him. He was buried alive. What if no one had been watching? Isn't it possible that we could be talking about this, his disappearance to this day as a likely abduction? Oh, it's creepy. Number seven, the man on the boat the women climbed aboard was a serial killer. And says Keckler, I don't want to give you nightmares, but if you read about Oba Chandler, an American serial killer mass murderer executed 2011, and Keckler continues, this could have happened. It's horrific to consider, but multiple abductions have happened on numerous occasions. And once a maniac has you isolated far out on the waters of Lake Michigan, especially if he has a gun or some other serious weapon, what can you do? 
Keckler winds up the article by saying he is unconvinced by all of these possibilities as explanations of the fate of the missing women, Ann Miller, Patricia Bloff, and Renee Brule, but points out that any of these scenarios could have happened. He had also noted that Patricia Bloff seemed to hint that she was about to vanish, and she would presumably not have anticipated a fateful encounter with Richard Speck, a serial killer mentioned in the article. And the article has, uh, explains this. A man who stated that he was the brother of Patricia Bloff gave some interesting input on this mystery. He stated that his older sister told him that she had a big secret she wanted to share with him, but that she couldn't. One wonders whether this was about the, quote, horse syndicate people, or her possible pregnancy, or something altogether different. This was just before she disappeared. And that particular mystery of the dunes is another story, of course, possibly for another time. But there are definitely some podcasts, other podcasts about that story, the mystery of the dunes. Well, thank you for joining me for this extra cool ghost story about Diana of the dunes, birthed by an even cooler legendary woman who decided to live her life differently. So keep on doing your own thing. See you next time. Must I, must I, the Encyclopedia Neurotica, it's my rule in the plan, I must, and I must, and I must.